this. We look to our Lord now in prayer. So, Father, in the second of three services, we are thanking you that in this week of transition, the comings and goings of people where college students are returning to their campuses, and families are coming back into the Sheboygan area, and some families are leaving the Sheboygan area to head to various places in the, in the nation. There is a matter of maintaining your truth in the times of transition. Now, if there's anybody here today that feels like they're in the midst of transition, They're going through change, whether they've embraced it or not, sought it or not, wanted it or not. We're praying now that you will apply changeless truths to their changing times. Allow for your word to speak. Cause the person who came in here spiritually curious, but not yet a believer. Cause the person who might have religious traditions, but is not yet a believer. To rethink, to re-engage, and allow, by the Holy Spirit's working, your truth to settle into their minds, hearts, and souls. So that there will be a reversal in the way in which they live life. And it becomes God-centered rather than self-focused. Where they can see eternity and how it relates to the times in which they live. Putting faith in Jesus alone for salvation. In these minutes you give us to be together. We're praying once again that you would warm these hearts. That you would engage these minds. That you would shape these wills. Come here, Father, again to see Jesus, him only. I'm praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Grace. You look for various ways to illustrate it, don't you? One that comes to my mind emerges out of the time period of the latter days of the Civil War. When President Lincoln's counselors had come to talk about the time after the war was drawing to a close, and they wanted to find a way to punish the South as their enemy now conquered. And so they asked President Lincoln how he planned to deal with the South. You know what he said? The president responded, I will treat them as if they never left. Maybe this morning you're looking at your life and you are recalling where you parted company. There was a fork in the road and you hit it the wrong way. What I want to do with people who opt for going in a different direction is to think very carefully about the direction that God has here in front of us. 
to ponder this idea from the Civil War. I'll treat them as if they never left and ask, and how does that relate to the way in which this text unfolds before us? Now, what the apostle does is that he brilliantly sets up a contrast. If you're a teacher at schools, notice the tremendous value of setting up contrasts to be able to communicate a singular truth. Now, what the Apostle Paul is about to do at this point is to set up a contrast, leaning us into but in God of verse 4, helping us to understand the before and the after of God's grace. Is that good? And so I'm going to look at the first aspect of this contrast, and it comes out of verse 1 down through verse 3. It has to do with where we're at in relationship with God. And we're going to pen it like this, number one. First of all, we need to be able to recognize the Christian's prior state, condition, status before God, previous to God's saving grace. What was it like beforehand is the question we're now asking. Now, if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you know that there's a beforehand and an afterhand, so to speak. If you come here spiritually curious, scripturally hungry, but have not yet experienced that but God moment in your life, all you know in essence is that the beforehand is at hand. And that's my hand. God wants to break into that, you see, but he's going to offer you a sense of a description. He's going to use a a canvas, and he's going to paint this picture of what it's like prior to God's grace intervening in our lives. And notice, notice how he begins. In chapter 2, verse 1, he starts with this phrase, and you were dead. Now, the word you in the original language is in the emphatic. If you could put an exclamation point in the middle of a sentence or at the start of a sentence, that's in essence what he's doing here. This is a dramatic introduction of you and me into how God views life prior to grace, and he does it dramatically, and he does it personally. Insert your name there. But notice the next word. And you were. Doesn't read, and you are dead. Reads, you were dead. Which means then that he's talking to believers at this point. Otherwise, then it would be a present tense experience for them. But you're still leaning into this thing and you're saying, but Gary, wait a second. If we are saying you were dead, does that mean we've got walking dead people on our hands? And the answer is, yeah, we do. Got them at work, got them at school, got them in neighborhoods. 
what we've got to do at this point is to understand biblically how that word dead is utilized. There are three types of death that are described in the Bible. The first type of death is spiritual death. It involves the separation of the soul from God. In other words, you and I came into this world spiritually dead, though physically alive. Where did this deadness come from? The central truth you and I have got to keep in mind is that death is the penalty for sin. You might recall that Genesis account in chapter 2, verse 17, where God had said to Adam, In the day that you eat of this, you will surely die. And you say, But Gary, he and Eve went trucking out of that garden. Yeah, they were physically alive, but simultaneously they were spiritually dead. For you see, what death has to offer us is separation. The person who is spiritually dead, the soul is separated, you see, from God. So you and I came into this world separated, alienated from God. In the Bible, there is a second kind of death. It's physical death. And physical death is the separation of the soul from the body. Spiritual death, separation of the soul from God. Physical death, separation of the soul from the body. The effect of that is that all of a sudden that person is separated from their loved ones. They might linger in the cemetery, but the separation is gripping the emotions. But there's also a third form of death in the Bible. It's eternal death. It's, you see, the separation. It's the spiritual death made permanent. The separation of the person from God forever. Now, he's not referring to eternal death here. He's not referring to physical death here. When he says you were dead, he's talking about spiritual death here. And he was saying, you were a walking dead person when you learned to stop crawling and begin walking. You see, That you came into this world physically alive, but spiritually dead. I heard about this story, read about it by a a Scottish expositor. Scotland has produced incredible biblical expositors through the years. 1800s, Alexander McLaren in Manchester, England. And today, in 2017, I think of my friend Alistair Begg in Ohio. Story is told that there was this graveyard in one of the areas in Scotland, in the counties of Scotland, a stranger was buried there, and it troubled, it troubled the people of that particular parish so much that they put a notice up outside of the graveyard, and this is what the notice read, quote, 
this graveyard is reserved exclusively for the dead who are living in this parish, unquote. See where we're going with that? There was more to the thought process than they had even entertained. Now, what the Apostle Paul is doing at this point is wanting us to come to grips with the fact that the naturalistic person thinks of only one form, not three forms, of death. The naturalistic thinker only thinks of physical death and it produces separation from loved ones, so to speak. But when you get a sense of the breadth, the depth, the scope of God's eternal plan, you realize there is more than one form of death. There is spiritual death. There is physical death. There is eternal death. And we've got to ask him, where do I fit into this overall descriptive when he writes, and you were, not ah. So he's talking to believers at this point. You were dead. You're still in verse 1. And notice where this death was. In the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Again, past tense, not present tense. Now, when he says at this point, in the trespasses, what he's talking about here is that there were known boundaries in which the unbeliever was crossing over. And those of you that are hunters, you tend to know the boundaries of where you can hunt. What he's saying is that this is a culture that disregards boundaries that God has set. In that Garden of Eden, which we're going to be exploring next week, God set boundaries. Now, somebody might say that's an overly restrictive God setting up boundaries, but God gave them the opportunity to experience and to enjoy so much of that garden that there was only one, just one restriction. There was a minimal boundary established, but even that was not sufficient in the eyes, you see, of the evil realm. Because the culture desires no boundaries and no restrictions. And so he's saying here, but you cross the line. The other word that's used here, hamartia, we've spotted it before in our studies in 1 John. Hamartia carries with the idea from uh, the military to miss the mark. Where he had an archer involved in battle and he wasn't able to hit his target. Now, what interests us is that when you take the word trespasses and you connect it to the word sins, what theologians will call sins of commission and sins of omission, the sum total of sins are found right there, you see. Whether you're proactive or passive in all this, you were, not are, dead, where in the trespasses and sins, but then you ponder, because he goes on to say this, in once, in which you once walked. Look what comes next. If you're using the English Standard Version, not once, but twice, you're going to spot the word following. 
following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. If you use other versions, it might be according to. According to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, begin to break this down. You were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. He's saying that's not the case for the believer anymore. But notice here, you're a follower. Following the course of this world. Now he shifts gears, and it's almost as if this is like a track in which you're running. You're following a certain course. You bikers, you might be following a certain course to get to your destination. But then he adds this, in addition, following the prince of the power of the air. Now, who is the prince of the power of the air? It's incredible that he calls Satan this, prince of the power of the air. Lord Jesus here described him as the prince of this world. I had a smile, a former professor of mine is with Jesus now, Dr. S. Lewis Johnson. Dr. Johnson, tremendous influence on my life, and interestingly, influence upon John MacArthur's life. Well, many years ago, there was a minister, his name was S. Parks Kathman. Didn't believe in the authority or the inerrancy of God's word. Emphasized salvation simply by human effort. Not a believer, a skeptic, very much like in the mold of Harry Emerson Fosdick. And he had a radio broadcast, well-known nationwide, influential. He was introducing a man over the radio one day, and an evangelical heard him. He introduced this man as being an incredible Christian minister. And then began building him up by talking about his education and his background, his accomplishments. And then in one final rhetorical flourish said, quote, And now we present to you the prince of the power of the air, unquote. What is God saying at this point? He's not the king, but he's described as the prince. Well, in John chapter 8, Jesus looked for other descriptives to be able to help followers identify just who is this one. He's engaged in a religious debate, and these religious unbelievers at this point in the religious establishment are pushing the envelope, and finally Jesus says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, taking them back to Genesis 4, Cain and Abel. Does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We look at this very carefully then. 
And what we realize is that this individual, this one that the Apostle Paul is identifying, is the same that Jesus Christ was identifying. And now you connect the two followings. Following the course of this world, number one. Following the prince of the power of the air. And then the comma. And you and I are told that he's still operative. He wasn't buried in the Garden of Eden. The spirit that is now at work. The work carries with the idea of intense energy. There is intentional and intense energy involved in this effort in the sons of disobedience. You've got to figure them out. What's his game plan? What's his strategy? Why is he doing what he's doing? You continue to read at this point, and then you read in verse 3, among whom we all, past tense, once lived. In the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, And we're by nature children of wrath. Pause there. And realize that you can't escape that nature. Because this nature comes natural. You look at that and you ponder the significance of what he's offering you and offering me at this point. And what we desperately need is for God to break in, to make a difference, to God to break in and, and to intervene. And so he describes this one, born into this world, physically alive but spiritually dead, in verse 3, as by nature, child of wrath. Stunning. Now here's something we've got to bear in mind when we're involved in conversations. There's a tendency among some people to think that, that the Old Testament is the testament of wrath and the New Testament is the testament of love. But if you look at what God did in the Garden of Eden while he, where he let Adam and Eve go, what a statement of love. And when Jesus Christ died on that cross and paid the penalty for our sins, what a statement of wrath. There's going to be some, furthermore, that say justice is marked in the Old Testament, but grace is marked by the New Testament. But again, God was gracious enough to make a promise and carry on that promise generation by generation by generation from the seed of Eve all the way in that genealogy that's described to Jesus. That's grace. At the same time, justice takes place at that cross. Sin is addressed. The penalty of sin is paid and the power of sins broken. In the future, the presence of sin will be abolished. So don't let somebody simply divide those two testaments. 
Let them see the continuity between them, the way in which God's gracious plan was unfolding. Let them see justice as well as grace at the cross and allow them to be able to see how love and wrath were two sides of the same coin. Mocked by what Jesus did in our place, you see, for our sins. You've reached that point now. You've begun to think very seriously here of these descriptives. We were dead to God, verse 1. We were followers of evil, verse 2. We were children of wrath, verse 3. What you and I need is an interventionist. Somebody who can break in and make the difference. But God. So beginning in verse 4, you and I have the second aspect of this powerful contrast unfolding. The number two, you and I should be able to recognize the Christian's present state before God because of God's saving grace. Notice now the phrase, but God, and how it begins to unfold. And think about the various ways we've been able to ponder and process the but gods. Genesis 50, verse 20. Joseph's brothers are scared because Joseph is now seated in a position of authority in Egypt. They had sold him into slavery. They meant it for the bad. But Joseph was able then to communicate to them But God meant it for the good. Job is struggling, you see, with his physical condition. Where do I go from here? But in Job 23, verse 10, But God knows the way. You might feel so incredibly vulnerable this morning with the highs and lows of life. But Psalm 3, verse 3 informs you and informs me. But God is my shield. Looking for some love? Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love toward us in that while we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. Your body breaking down? But then 1 Corinthians 15, verse 38. But God gives it a body. We need the interventionist. And notice the description of him at this point. But God, being rich, being rich in mercy. Now the Bible speaks of the riches of his goodness in Romans 2 verse 4. It speaks of the riches of the glory of his, the inheritance of his saints in Ephesians 1.18. There are the riches of his grace and redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in Ephesians 1.7. And now what you and I find is that though we are impoverished before God and can't buy grace, but God, being rich in mercy, look what 
comes next. It does not read because of the great love which we had for him. You and I were separated from God. Even this love is interventional. But God, being rich in mercy, not because of the great love with which we had for him, but rather because of the great love with which he loved us. And as if he had to remind us in verse 5, even when we were dead, there it is again, physically alive, but spiritually dead, where in our trespasses, draw a line back to verse 1. What did he do? Made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. He'll take you, not as an improved version of yourself. He takes you spiritually dead, and brings life into your life. came across a story of one who administered in free church circles in the Scandinavian regions. Cesar Milan, famous pastor from Geneva, had incredible interest, you see, in, in leading people to saving faith in Jesus Christ. And there was a woman who came along, and he began to carry on a conversation with her, and caught her off guard with a question with regard to where she stood in relationship with God. She got standoffish. And so he just simply accepted that. Okay, that's where we're at for the moment. But let her know that he'd be praying for her. And then things start deteriorating in her life. She sought him out. She wanted to know what it took to come to Jesus. And Melan replied, you have to come just as you are. Later, that woman, Charlotte Elliott, would write these words. Just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. You can't produce a renovated, updated, upgraded version of yourself to make yourself acceptable before God because you're dealing with deadness. We need but God to produce lifeness. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love, not which we had for him, but because of what he had for us, with which he loved us, and then begin to ponder what's here. I want you to spot the widths. There are three of them found here, beginning in verse 5. Track them. See how this relates to you, and see how it relates to Christ. Verse 5. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive. First time an action verb is used here. We've been waiting and waiting and waiting. What is God about to do? Now he doesn't. But he tells us, made us alive together with Christ. Circle that word with. 
But don't stop circling. He adds, by grace you've been saved. Verse 6. And raise us up with him. Circle that word with. And seated us where? With him. Now the thinking person is beginning to process something here. You connect verse 5 and verse 6. You see where it says, made us alive together with Christ? Alive. Think Christ's resurrection. We are identified with Christ, the resurrected one. Read into verse 6. And raised us up with him. That's Christ's ascension. We are identified with the ascended one. And then thirdly, where it says, and seated us with him, that's Christ's session. In other words, we are identified with the seated one. Raised, ascended, seated, with, with, with. You are identified with Christ. And this is all of grace. You should take your breath away. You should have an increased pulse at this point. Dead people don't do this. But a risen Savior accomplishes this. Once, twice, three times with this is brought into your, your dynamic. Why? Verse 7, so that in the coming ages, now he's looking ahead, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Take the riches of verse 4, but God being rich in mercy, connect it now to the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And now he set you up for what you and I know as one of the profound statements of what salvation is all about. Here it comes. For by grace, not by our works, for by grace, you. Take that word, you, connect it back to verse 1. It began with the emphatic, and you were dead, but now in verse 8, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Faith is the instrument here. And when you and I begin to ponder the significance of what he has stated here, we know that it's not human merit. Because merit and grace are polar opposites. You nor I can merit the grace of God. That's an oxymoron. You've got to keep these two separate from one another. Now certainly, you and I know from Reformation Sunday that there was a great emphasis placed upon this whole idea of grace alone. 
But I think that historically, you can go prior to Reformation 1517, back to the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15, where some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And what Paul and Peter had to establish is that it is grace alone, not grace plus circumcision. Or, in contemporary circles, grace alone, not grace plus baptism, which seems to be the connecting theme to circumcision of that time period. And so when I'm sharing the gospel many times with what we call religious unbelievers, it's not unusual for them to say, but I was baptized in, and then they'll name their denomination or their church. They don't merely say, I was baptized, period. They say, I was baptized in. And so they find their salvation, their estimation in their church or in their denomination rather than in the Savior. Now, what Acts 15 establishes for you and for me that we do not merit grace that is a contradiction in thought. During the Spanish-American War, Clara Barton, who was the founder of the Red Cross, was working in Cuba. And one day, he was colonel at that time, Teddy Roosevelt came to her and wanted to buy food for some of the sick soldiers that he was leading, wounded among the Rough Riders. Get this. She refused to sell him what he wanted. He didn't understand. He was going to pay for the supplies out of his own funds. So he went to a surgeon in charge and said, she won't let me buy the supplies for my wounded soldiers. And the surgeon smiled, looked at him and said, you go back and just show your empty hands. He did, and she gave. Do you approach God with your hands full, full of your works? Or do you approach God with your hands empty, simply trusting God's grace? Do you approach God with your hands full of baptism? Do you Approach God with your hands full of your efforts? Or do you approach God with your hands empty? But the approach is the faith. For by grace you have been saved. Here is the vehicle, here is the instrument through faith. And now, what does he do here? Because you're still following the text at this point. You process the Clara Bot in illustration, and now you say, Give me some more perspective, Apostle Paul. And here it comes. He's going to use not one, but two negatives. To make absolutely certain you and I get it. He says, first of all, and this is not your own doing. Now that humbles us. It's the gift of God. But now a second negative, not a result of works, 
so that no one may boast and stand before God and say, look what I did for you. And you say, well, Gary, then, what's the point of it all? Works. Well, you're getting out of verse 10. And once you and I have processed that it is Christ's work, not our works which save us, it is Christ's work that in turn unleashes our opportunity to do works for him. For in verse 10 it reads, For we are his workmanship. You artists will appreciate this because the word carries with it the idea of a magnificent work of art in the original. Not self-created. Created in Christ Jesus. For what purpose? For good works. As Luther would have put it, we are saved by grace through faith alone, but not by a faith which stands alone. Our works are the evidence, you see, of our faith that we should walk in them. And now you draw a line from the word walk in verse 10 back to verse 2. We had read, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. So we walked physically alive but spiritually dead. In verse 1 and 2, but we end here in verse 10, and we walk physically alive and spiritually alive. There is no separation, because not once, not twice, but three widths, witness establishes that fact. Because of the but God moment, which takes us back to how we all started this in the beginnings of this series when the late Charles Evans Hughes, in his capacity as Secretary of State, attended a Pan-American conference. He told his interpreter to give him a summarized translation of what was being spoken in Spanish or Portuguese. But then he said this, quote, while a running translation for me in English is ample for my purpose, I want you to give me every word after the speaker uses the word but. For what follows but is what is of most importance to me. But God, being rich in mercy, sent Jesus to die for our sins. For you, physically alive but spiritually dead? Or are you physically alive and spiritually alive? Do you have three widths as part of your life? Let's stand together. Now, Father, we've covered a lot here in ten verses. Wish we could have gone slower and done this over several weeks, but Knowing we scratched the surface, I pray that you've penetrated the heart. So I'm asking first for that person who might be a religious unbeliever, 
or might view himself, herself as a secular unbeliever or some secularized religious aspect of their lives. To be confronted with the series of the but gods that we've been challenged by in your word and come to the point, fact that, yes, I need God to bring life to my deadness. So even now I pray, Lord, that he or she will repent of sin and leave here by your Holy Spirit, having put faith and trust exclusively in Jesus Christ for salvation and be quick to share that information with somebody close to them so they'll know. They'll know. And Father, for all of us who know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the witness of resurrection, the witness of ascension, the witness of session. We pray, Father, that while we entered this world separate from you, you desired witness with us. So we thank you for the relationship we can have with you through Jesus. We will never take that for granted. For this, we give you all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.